Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I know that uh, some of you are going to watch the game tonight. I uh, was trying to think of something smart to say about it. You know, uh, there's there's actually a chapter in the Bible, Daniel 8, about a ram and a goat, but I wasn't going to go there. Um, there were all these jokes I was reading online that preachers could use, but you know what? Frankly, all of them are pretty bad. Yeah, had to be done. So... All right, so uh, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. By the way, um, if you uh, are doing our all-in challenge, you uh, started Exodus a couple of days ago, and so I want to help you out with that. Exodus is where the Bible starts getting a little harder to read, uh, especially the second half of Exodus. I I've, I've wrote some study notes for that book, so there's a sheet on the table outside, on the all-in table you can grab on your way out. If they're all gone, I'll put out some more. Um, but keep up with that Bible reading. You're going to be blessed by it. Uh, you get through some difficult parts. They're important parts, but they're a little harder for us. It's all rich. It all blesses you. Pray for the lost. Pray for the lost daily. We, we introduced a, a method of doing that called concentric circles. Um, if, you didn't, if you weren't here for that or if you didn't write it down, there's a sheet about that on the all-in table you can take and you can make out your own list of the people you need to pray for every day. Engage in missions. There, for today, maybe the last Sunday, we'll have those tables up with all the information for you to sign up for information on our different mission opportunities. And then last week we talked about uh, each one of us challenging ourselves to step up our generosity. Hopefully you've had a conversation this past week with the Lord or with uh, your, your spouse or whoever you share finances with about what are we going to do? How are we going to give more to God's work in the coming year? So with all that said, let's look at Acts. Now, uh, the, the title of this series is What the World Needs Now. And the reason I titled it that is because we live in a world that's fundamentally broken. I think we can all agree on that, especially after what we've seen in the news this past week. But what this world needs more than anything else is for God's church to be the church it was meant to be. Now, I know that seems trite, especially coming from uh, a preacher. It may sound like just the party line. But as much as great as it would be to cure cancer and other dread diseases, as wonderful as it would be to see poverty be eliminated from this planet, as much as it would be, as great as it would be to see peace and an end to all war, at the root of all those problems and more in humanity, is the fact that we're estranged from God. We as human beings are separated from God by our sin. And until we get that one relationship right, nothing else is going to go right. And God chooses to reconcile the world to Himself through His Son Jesus and His death on the cross, but that good news comes through His people, the church. As I said last week, God's plan A for the salvation of the world is His church. And He doesn't have a plan B as far as we know. And I know it's very popular these days to look down on the church, to, to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't really go in for organized religion. And we all have our reasons why we've gotten discouraged with this church or another church down through the years. But it's still how God does His work. And what we need to see is the church being the church it was meant to be. First Baptist Conroe and every other church that preaches in the name of Jesus. So what we need to see in churches today is a, is a complete change in culture. I have a brother-in-law who's a high school football coach, and he has a brother from back home where he grew up, Minnesota, who's also a football coach. Some years ago, his Minnesota brother brought some of his fellow coaches down to Texas, 
And they said to my brother-in-law, Steve, hey, we want to go to a practice of a Texas football team. Take us to whoever has the best team around here. So Steve took them to the football practice of Katy High School. They just wanted to see what is Katie's secret sauce. If you don't follow high school football, which I'm sure most of you don't, you may not realize that every year Katie's one of the two or three best teams in the state. Just every year, year in, year out. So they come to the practice, and I just have to tell you by experience, football practices are not exciting. There's nothing interesting going on unless you're a total football nerd. Uh, it's just a few drills going on, and the people who are doing them aren't really excited about it. The people who are you know, for whatever reason, not participating. They're not engaged. They're just talking amongst themselves, drinking water, talking about who they're going out with this Friday night or what car they want to buy, etc. But this practice was different. They show up at the practice and it looked like a game was going on. Everyone was on their feet. Everyone was into it. There was just a sense of fervency, of intensity that they'd never seen before in any practice they'd been to. And so one of the Minnesota coaches walked up to one of the guys who's on the sideline and tapped him on the shoulder pads and he said, hey, what do you get if you win the scrimmage today? And the kid said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, y'all are so into this. I'm just assuming that if your side wins, you don't have to run sprints, right? Or maybe you get free Gatorade or something like that. And the kid just kind of looked at him like he'd grown a second head and said, we get pride. And then he turned back and started yelling at his teammates again. And that's when those coaches realized that what made this program successful wasn't that their guys were bigger, stronger, faster. I Actually, compared to other schools the same size, they don't send any more kids to, to play college football. It wasn't because they had some revolutionary strategy. There was nothing unique in what they did. It's just that their culture was a culture of excellence. That if you went out for football at Katy High School and you weren't 100% dialed in and all in for victory, if you aren't giving your 100% effort all the time, you kind of stood out in a bad way. You didn't fit in with your teammates because that was what was expected. Not by the coaches, but by the team itself. Now, some of you know what it's like to be part of an organization like that. Maybe you played sports growing up and you were lucky enough to be a part of at least one team that had that kind of mentor, that kind of, uh, that kind of culture and, and mentality. Or maybe you were in a band or an orchestra or a theater troupe that was, that was just pursuing excellence very, very uh, determinedly. Or, or maybe you even worked at a company like that where every day you were excited to go to work because good things were happening. Y'all were doing important work and everybody was giving their best. What would it be like to be part of a church like that? What would it be part of a church where there was just an expectation that everyone is going to give their all? That everyone is completely committed to the cause. That there's, there's no selfishness going on. There's no petty stuff. And I'm not talking about legalism when I talk about a culture of excellence in a church. In legalistic church, when someone stumbles, when someone doesn't measure up to standards, we, we throw them aside. I mean, isn't the church famous for shooting its own wounded, right? I'm talking about a church where when someone stumbles, when I stumble, you love me enough to confront me and then love me back onto my feet until I don't make the same mistake again twice. I'm talking about a church where everyone is committed to the cause of Christ and nothing else. Where we don't sit around griping about something in the church that doesn't agree with our own expectations and preferences. We're too busy talking about what we need to do to reach the people outside the walls where we are all constantly so busy looking at our own hearts and, and trying, striving for greater growth in Christ, we're too busy doing that to, to notice the speck in the eye of our neighbor, right? Where every week we see people coming to know Christ as Savior, 
coming into a family where they go from self-centered to self-sacrificing, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, where we see that happen Sunday after Sunday so often that when it doesn't happen on that rare Sunday, when it doesn't happen, we all go to lunch afterwards and say, what went wrong today? Because I didn't see anybody get saved today. I didn't see anybody get baptized. I didn't hear any testimonies in my life group of amazing things people were doing. That just becomes our expectation. That is what the world needs now. It needs a church with that kind of culture, with that kind of mentality. So what we want to do is see what happened in the book of Acts. In Acts, we see the church as it originally started. And we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 and we're going to see kind of a before and after picture. And we were, we're familiar with before and after pictures, right? Because we watch TV and we see these, these uh, diet uh, products or these workout products that show us, okay, here's the guy who is just this skinny weakling or this fat slob, and then here's after when he's got a six-pack abs, right? And so we're familiar with that. We watch this happen in the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So start with chapter 1, verse 12. The situation here is, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. They've gone up. I mean, this is after the, he was crucified. He rose again the third day. He's with them 40 days. Then he takes them up the Mount of Olives, about two miles away from Jerusalem, and they watch him just go straight up into the sky and sit at the right hand of his father. And this is what happens next. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's day walk, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, he's just named 11 apostles. There were originally 12. You remember what happened, right? Judas betrayed Jesus. And in his guilt, he took his own life. And so now they've got a problem. Jesus is gone. They know he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. They don't know exactly what that means. There's only 11 apostles, and they think, well, we've got to do something about that. I mean, obviously, there need to be 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus picked 12 apostles. There's something magical about that number 12. And so they do an interesting thing. Uh, Verse, Skip down to verse 20. He says, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So he's quoting the Scriptures to say, see, we know now that God knew that one of of the apostles would, would run away, would be lost to us. Verse 21, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. That's that's what they call in the first century a sick burn right there. he, He went where he belongs. Verse 26. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. So, here's an interesting point. This is the only time this happens in church history. From now on, in years to come, apostles will be martyred. Never again will the church say, oh my goodness, we need to replace them. 
This is the only time also when we see the apostles or the church itself say, we don't know what to do, so let's cast lots. And it's sort of the equivalent of tossing a coin. Okay, Lord, make this land on heads if you want me to do this. This is the only time it's done in church history because something changes after chapter 1. In fact, if I were to describe the church at this point, 120 people locked in an upper room, waiting, scared, confused, small. That's how I would describe them. If you and I had been alive in the first century and hadn't been Christians yet, if someone would have asked you, what do you think is going to happen to that movement that Jesus started, we would have said they're not going to last a year. There's no way. But something changes. Look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, we're not going to read the whole chapter. You're welcome. But we're going to start with verse 41. So what happens, let me just sum up what happens. Day of Pentecost. Very, very famous holiday among the Jews. So during a, during a holy day, people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So picture this. Jerusalem in that time is a city of about 55,000. Small, walled city. But it swells to 300,000, 400,000 because Jews from all over the Mediterranean world come to Jerusalem for the holiday. So imagine you're from Turkey, you're from Greece, you're from uh, Cilicia or from Cyprus, and you make the long voyage. You don't speak Hebrew. You speak the language you grew up with. And there you are in the city of Jerusalem with all these other people from all over the known world, and you're all celebrating this holiday when suddenly you hear a sound. You hear the sound of your language being spoken. Now, if you've ever been to a foreign country, you know what I'm about to tell you is true. If you are in a situation where no one is speaking your language, and you've been there for a while, and suddenly you hear someone speaking your language, you're drawn to that sound. The sound of your heart language is a beautiful sound. So they hear words being spoken in their language, and they flock to that location. People from all over the world gather in this one location. Because what has happened, what they don't realize is the Holy Spirit has fallen on these 120 people in a new way. And these people are given a new ability. And at that moment at least, they're able to speak the languages of the people in that city, even though they weren't trained in these languages. And so these men and women, these 120 men and women, are standing outside their upper room, and they're saying the words of the Gospel, and that draws a crowd. And then Peter looks at the crowd that's drawn around him, thousands of people, and says, Now's an opportunity to tell them the good news. Now let's keep in mind who Peter is, right? Peter is the guy who all through the four Gospels never seems to get it right. He's always quick to speak. His mouth is always way ahead of his brain, right? Anybody else identify with that? Don't raise your hand. We all know who you are. Um, He's the one who always says the wrong thing. He's the one who boasts about being courageous and yet is the one who denied Jesus three times. And here, when thousands of people gather, he suddenly finds the courage to stand up and preach a message of salvation. A message he did not prepare ahead of time. He has no notes. He has no prior warning. He just gets up and starts talking. We're not going to read chapter 2 today. You read it earlier in your Bible reading. But I want to show you what the result is after he gives this message. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, is that a good day at church? I think that's a very good day at church. You go from a church of 120 to a church of 3,000 plus in one moment. Verse 42, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So that's kind of a summary statement. These 3,000 people, just imagine, they've come from hundreds of miles away and now they're staying in Jerusalem. They found the life. They don't want to go home. Even though their jobs, even though their house, even though everything they know is back there, they're staying here and they're living together. They're a community of one. So here's what happened in the early church. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what made the difference? I mean, we had, a, we had a group of people, 120 people, who were small, confused, fearful, and waiting. Now you have a, people, uh, a group that's 3,000 plus, and they're full of awe. They've got power. They've got radical generosity, joy, humility. There's sincere worship going on, true community, growth, transformation, earning the favor of the people. Everyone sees what they've got and they want some. What makes the difference? Well, James's video gave away the answer already, didn't it? The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God made the difference. It wasn't that their preaching was especially powerful. It wasn't that they had a great building. They didn't have a building at all. They didn't have paid staff. They didn't have hymnals. They didn't, there weren't even hymns yet. They didn't have printed Bibles. All they had was the Holy Spirit in their own testimony. And this is what happened. So, Here's my sermon in a sentence for you. When the Holy Spirit takes charge of a church, great things happen. When the Holy Spirit takes charge of a church, lives get changed. So what would that look like if it happened here? What would it look like if the Holy Spirit took complete control of this church and there was no doubt whatsoever, every decision, every person's heart, everything was guided by Him and Him alone. There's three things we can take from this passage that we know we could count on if that happened here. Number one, when the Holy Spirit is in charge, we will expect God to do amazing things. We will just expect it to happen. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now that word awe, we don't say that word awe very often. We say awesome. We say, man, this ice cream is so awesome. Man, that game last night was awesome. Have you heard that new song? It's awesome. None of those things are truly awesome. Okay? It's okay to like those things, but awesome means it takes my breath away. Awesome means I am fascinated by this. Awesome means this has changed my life. Picture this. A man walks into the sanctuary right now with a full-grown male lion on a leash. Do you think every eye in the room is going to be staring at that lion? Absolutely. Are you going to be filled with a little sense of fear, but at the same time a little bit fascinated, wanting to watch him? Absolutely. That is awe. In the Old Testament, they called it the fear of the Lord. And that's what was going on in this church. There was an expectation. Every time they gathered, they said, God's going to do something great. In fact, every day they woke up, God is going to do something amazing. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be amazing. And that would be true here. Now I can tell you, I already look forward to church every Sunday. I look forward because I know we're going to have some great music and we're going to sing some great songs. And I'm going to see people I really love. 
And I like preaching, so I'm going to get to do what I love and y'all have to sit there and listen to me. So I look forward to every Sunday and I hope you do too, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we would be a church where every day we'd wake up and say, God's going to do something great today. I don't know what it is, but I know it's going to be great and I can't wait to see what it will be. Now, I know we live in a time when it's common to say, well, the age of miracles is past. That was Bible times. This is modern times. God doesn't do those kinds of things anymore. And I will say, it is wise to be discerning. If you venture onto one of those TV channels where you see a guy in a very expensive suit putting his hand on someone's forehead and then they collapse and he says, praise the Lord, and you think to yourself, he's making money off of supposed healings. I'm not sure this guy's on the up and up. I agree with you. Okay? Discernment is one thing. Lack of faith is another. God is still God. God can do what He wants to do. If God chooses to unleash miracle power in this church, He will. If God chooses to do things we've never seen or only seen in Scripture, He will. I read a book a few years ago called Miracles by an author named Eric Metaxas. Now, that information is in the article I wrote in your bulletin if you want to look this book up. Metaxas is a Harvard-educated guy who came to know Christ as an adult, and he's written some amazing books. I highly recommend him. But in this particular book, he tells stories, credible stories of actual miracles that have taken place in modern times. He tells stories of angelic visitations, of unexplainable healings, other strange things that have happened that have just manifested the presence of God in amazing ways. And it's an interesting book. But for me, in the book, the most interesting and exciting stories were the stories of people whose lives got changed by salvation. So Metaxas tells the story of himself and how he grew up. He's from a Greek background, so he grew up in a Greek Orthodox congregation, going to church but never really uh, knowing that he had to follow Jesus in a personal way. Uh, As a teenager, he worked in a Greek restaurant that was owned by some people in his church. And there was a guy that he worked with that... I mean, even by the standards of a teenage boy, which I was one once, so I know what he's talking about. Even by the standards of a teenage boy, this co-worker of his was particularly vile, particularly profane, really, really degrading in the comments he made toward women, including customers, including the waitresses on their team. You know, just kind of a nasty guy. So later on, Metaxas grows up. He, he leaves his home. He's not religious at all, and yet comes to faith in a, in a very interesting story all its own. So as a, as a baby Christian in his late twenties, he, he goes back to his home church. They're having their annual Greek festival where they invite the whole city to come and, and eat good food and drink wine and, and enjoy music and dancing and the whole nine yards. It's a, it's a fundraiser for the church. And so he goes to this. And when he gets there, uh, the elders of the church are very upset because there's a street preacher. This is New York, by the way. There's a street preacher out on the street in front of the congregation, in front of the church building. And they're saying, man, this nut is out there and he's, He's, he's going to scare everybody off. Nobody's going to come to the festival today. And so Eric says, well, you know, I'm a believer now. Maybe I can go reason with him. So he goes out and he begins to talk to this guy. And he notices the guy is not a loony. He's, he's a very humble, very well-spoken guy, full of joy, full of love. There's also something very familiar about him. He can't quite figure it out, but he, he starts to say, you know, I'm a believer too. I know what you're trying to do and I agree with it. Um, but the people here at the church, they don't really understand what you're doing. They would appreciate it if you'd maybe move a block down the way. He says, no problem. I'm not here to cause any trouble. And as he's walking away, that's when it clicks in Eric's mind. That's the guy I used to work with. 
And he goes and he asks him, did you used to work at such and such a restaurant? Yeah, yeah. Are you so and so? Yeah. He says, what happened? He says, I met Jesus. See, that kind of transformation is what God specializes in. That's, that's what He does. And when the Holy Spirit is in charge of a church, we see that happen on a regular basis. We see it happen to some of us who've been just pretending to be religious. Just playing the part and suddenly Christ invades our soul and everything changes. We see it happen to our neighbors who don't want anything to do with God and yet somehow their lives are changed. We would expect those kinds of things to happen if the Holy Spirit were in charge. Number two, we will love people in an extraordinary way. When we put the Spirit in charge of everything, when the Spirit claims our church for Himself, we will see some amazing love for each other and for those outside the walls. Verses 44 and 45 talk about how in that church, everybody shared their possessions. It doesn't mean that, that there's anything wrong with having your own stuff. Because the Bible has plenty to say about how to manage the things that He gives you. And it doesn't mean that you and I have the right to look at somebody else and say, hey, you've got a lot of money. You've got a bigger house than I do. You need to sell that and give it to the poor. Because nowhere does it say that, that we get to decide who has what. Nowhere are we given criteria for, for saying this person is too rich or that person uh, needs more. That's not our place. God makes those judgments for Himself. And by the way, side note, if you talk to about three-quarters of the world, if they saw us today, they'd say every person in this room is astoundingly wealthy. So it's all relative. What this is about is the people of that church were in a tough spot. You've got 3,000 plus people suddenly moving to a city with no preparation, no place to live, no jobs, nothing. All they know is, this is where I met Jesus. This is where I want to stay. Somebody's got to provide for all those people. And some of those people, a few of them had possessions. A few of them had ancestral lands that they don't live on or they had homes that they left behind or they had businesses they'd started or possessions that they had acquired. And they said, you know, why am I hanging on to this piece of property when I've got this whole group of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who can't eat? I'm going to sell that property and give it to the church so the church can feed them. And that kind of thing happened all the time because there was an extraordinary love in that church. And I have to say this, although it's, it's going to be painful for me to say and maybe for y'all to hear. I've been in church my whole life. My whole life. I've been working in churches since I was 23, so that's over half of my life. And every church, without exception, every church I've ever been a part of, if you would have asked the members what's so great about your church, they would have said, well, we're a loving church. That's, we're not one of those cold-hearted churches. We're friendly. We love people. And what they mean when they say that is that's where my friends are. When I go there, I feel loved. But what is also true of every church I've ever been a part of is that it's hard to be new in those churches. It's hard to be a brand new person and come in and say, hey, I want to follow Jesus alongside you guys. And us say, hey, welcome in, but I've got my friends over here. I, I don't really need another friend right now. And sad to say, in every church I've been a part of, including this one, I've known people who've come and tried to become part of the family and then eventually given up because nobody, nobody ever said, hey, we're going out to lunch. Why don't you come with us? 
hey, uh, we're having a party at my house tonight for the Super Bowl. Why don't you come? Here's my number. Call me if you need anything. Let's get together for coffee this week. People aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. When's the last time you looked at someone in this sanctuary or out there in the atrium and said, I don't really know that person's name. I'm going to take the big risk of going up and saying, listen, I don't know who you are. Here's my name. Tell me yours. Have you been here long? Got any place you're eating lunch today? When's the last time you did something like that? Well, for that matter, when's the last time you knew someone in your, in your life group was uh, struggling financially and you sat down with them and said, what can I do? How can I help? Maybe, maybe a bunch of us need to pool our resources so we can help you with your bills until you get back on your feet. Or, or maybe if I find out what you do for a living, maybe I know someone in that industry and I can give you some contacts so you can get a new job. When's the last time you went and visited someone in the hospital that wasn't a part of your biological family. And you just sat with them. You didn't know what to say. It's okay. Just showing up and saying, I'm here for you. Do you need me to mow your yard? Is somebody looking after your dogs? Do you need somebody to pick up your kids? See, that's, that's what a loving church does. And I see some of that happening here. And it, it makes me glad. When I go to a hospital visit and there's members of this church who've beaten me there, that's wonderful. But when the Holy Spirit's in charge, that kind of thing is expected. When the Holy Spirit's in charge, that kind of thing is every day for us. Third of all, when the Holy Spirit's in charge, we will see God's family grow. And I know, I know, everyone's quick to say, hey Jeff, but it's not about numbers. Absolutely, it's not about numbers. But it is about people. And when the Lord's church is doing its part, People are drawn to the Gospel. And those people get saved. And when those people get saved, they get added to the congregation. And the congregation grows. As it says at the end of that passage we just read, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily. I've never been a part of a church where that happened. I have been a part of a church where people were getting saved on a pretty regular basis. I'll have to tell you this story. I, I was pastor when I was in my late 20s of First Baptist Church of Stockdale, Texas. How many of y'all have ever heard of Stockdale, Texas? Not Fort Stockton. Stockdale. Yeah, some, some hands went down. Stockdale is south of Seguin, east of San Antonio. It's a, a tiny little town in Wilson County. You really have to be lost to end up there unless you know someone there. Um, 1,200 people was the population. Our church averaged 120 on a Sunday morning. I thought that was pretty good. That's 10% of the town. Uh, so I felt pretty good about myself. It was a great church. Carrie and I and Kaylee had, was alive then. Will hadn't been born yet. But we have great memories of our time there. Just one quick story. Um, this was a town of a lot of farmers and ranchers. If you didn't farm and ranch for a living, you had cattle on the side, right? Um, and, and so when there wasn't rain, that was a big deal. And so one year, we were doing our budget planning, so we had this room full of leaders of the church. They're all sitting in this room, and, and we're trying to plan next year's budget, and we hear a rainstorm start. And that's a beautiful sound when you haven't had rain in a while. And one of them, I remember, I could name him, but I won't. He got up, and we said, what are you doing? He goes, i got to go outside and get some of that on my head. And that's exactly how he said it. He, 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 it was a, a two-syllable word. He, got, he went outside, and he took off his hat, and he just got some rain on his head. I'm sorry, his head. 
And, and, and so that was the kind of place that we were in. It was just a great place. Now, I tell you all, tell you that to tell you this. In 1999, when I was pastor there, we baptized 31 people. 31 people in a church of 120. That's a quarter of the Sunday morning attendance. That was an exciting year. Do you realize that if I baptized a number proportionately that size in this church, we would be baptizing four people a Sunday? Now, would anybody else like to see that? Would anybody else like to experience that? I mean... It'd be worth the water bill. It'd be worth wearing out our waiters. It'd be worth all of that to see that many people following Jesus Christ. And that can happen. See, in the early church, it didn't just happen for a Sunday. It happened every day. Daily, they were adding to the number of those who were saved. How does it happen? It happens because people who are thirsty and they don't even know what they're thirsty for, they see in us the living water, which is like nothing they've ever experienced Not in money, not in success, not in sex, not in pleasure, not in anything this world offers. They see what they've been thirsting for their whole lives and they don't even know it until that moment. And they just can't help themselves. It's too good to pass up. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit's in charge. And all I'm asking you to do today, all I'm asking us to do, is to just pray that that would happen here. When it happens, we call it revival. Now, when I was growing up, we used to have revivals once a year, and that was when we would bring in an outside preacher, you know, not our pastor, and he would preach to us on a weeknight for a, for a week or two, and we called that revival. But that's just a series of meetings. Nothing wrong with it. My brother got saved during one of those. But revival is what happens in our hearts when the Holy Spirit takes control. And what I'm asking you to pray is to pray along with me that God would do that here. And not just here, but all throughout our country. Don't you think this nation needs some revived churches? I hate to tell you this, but in a year we'll be in the middle of a presidential campaign. What the world needs is not another human leader. Although that's important. What the world needs is not another elephant or donkey. What the world needs is the Holy Spirit of God. What the world needs is to see His people be His people again. So as you pray this week, as you pray every day, Lord, revive our church, revive the church in our land, also pray, Lord, revive me. Let it begin in me. And if there's anything in me, if there's anything standing in the way of you doing that work in my life, if I'm clinging to some idol in my heart that stands in the way of revival in me, then make it known to me so I can get it out of the way and be completely obedient to you. Will you pray that way this week? You know that the, before you can be revived, you've got to be vived. You've got to have a life to gain new life. And the only reason you and I can have a life is because God became a man named Jesus who gave His life on the cross, opened the door for us to be saved, and that is the Gospel. And that's what people need to hear.